Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Sylvia Rozvodowska with Colibri Travel and Tours, and I just got to know her recently very well on a nine-day trip. Sylvia Rozvodowska, president, <laughs> owner, big dog at Colibri Travel and Tours. Welcome to this conversation. Thank you, Teresa, and uh, yes, thank you for this introduction, and I have an honor to represent Colibri Travel Tours. Well, you not only represent it, it's your baby, right? Yes, it is my company that I created with lots of sweat, <laughs> love, and passion for travel. And how long has this company been going on? Uh, so we established Colibri Travel Tours in 2014. When I look at your website, it says that you do 50 countries. You're sure. not that old. How have you done 50 countries already? <laughs> and you only started the company in 2014. Yeah, but you know, sometimes our trips connect countries. So for example, when we travel to South Africa, we also, uh, the trip includes Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, Botswana, because the countries are close one to each other. So I guess it's a little bit cheating, but we usually, many trips include more than one country. Vietnam, we combine with Thailand, Chile with Argentina and so on. Now we're going to get to Cuba because mm -hmm. I know that that's your passion. That's my absolute passion. Your absolute love and passion of your life. But where did the travel bug come from that you wanted to start a travel company? Uh, I was born a little bit with this. Uh, so I was born in Poland when Poland was behind the Iron Curtain and we couldn't really travel. And each time I saw a plane on the sky, passing the sky, I told my mom, one day I'd be on this plane. And they laughed at me because at this time we could only travel to socialist countries. Uh, and I knew that uh, as soon as I can, I will travel as much as I can. And I share this passion with others. And also I read, when I was little, I traveled through books. So I read passionately everything that included travel or other countries. And that sort of developed this. What a beautiful story. Oh, my goodness. I didn't learn that on the trip that we took. And I should explain to listeners that this trip was through Emory and Henry, through the mass communications department where I used to teach, and that Mark Finney had gotten involved with your company. How did that happen? I remember that someone recommended us to the school study abroad office. We exchanged some emails, some references from previous trips and travelers and we set up their first trip and it was an absolutely beautiful trip i think it was 2018 or 19 when students from emory actually spent two weeks with cuban students at university of san fuegos it went very well and then mark wanted to continue and so this was the third trip only this time yes. it was mm -hmm. uh, with students and adults on the same exactly. trip. Exactly, and alumni. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll get back to that, but we've got to get you from Poland to Boston, <laughs> where you started your company, if I'm correct, or Cambridge, just outside yes. of Boston. So there's yeah. a lot that happened in that time period. So actually, by training, I did also a civil engineering, so land surveying first, and I absolutely didn't like my job. I wasn't meant to be an engineer or work for a surveying company. I meant to do something that involves travel, and it was always in the back of my head. And then one of person from UMass Boston here in Boston uh, asked me if I could organize Polish trip for them, trip to Poland, my native country. And this is how I started. So it was easy because I knew Poland. Um, on that trip, there were people from other associations and universities. 
they love the trip. They asked me to organize trip to Japan. And I, at this time, I, I was ready to start the company. So I established as LLC and a very fast learn a lot about travel. Obviously. Well, you left Poland under when? How? Communism fell in no, what, actually, yes. I left Poland after socialism. We never really had communism as Russia did. But after socialism collapsed, Poland was in a very difficult transition period from uh, socialist to capitalism. Um, that actually was the hardest, not the socialist or not current situation, but this transition was very challenging because we had to learn very fast how to take responsibility in our hands. The jobs were no longer guaranteed. I graduated from uh, university. In, there was no so, so many opportunities in Poland back then, but there was an opportunity in the United States. You could get job. Uh, especially in the engineering field. And I was also an exchange student here before, so I always wanted to be in the United States. For some reason in Poland, it was this, um, United States is considered as this absolutely free country with limitless possibilities, unlimited possibilities for private entrepreneurs. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur always. So this is how I ended up in the United States. So never underestimate a little girl who says, someday I'm going to be in that airplane. Yes, never. I think if you stick to your dreams, it will always come true. It's just a matter of when. If the dream is very, very powerful and you're willing to take any action it takes, it's just a matter of when, not if it will come true. Well, and it does take more than just the dream. It takes somebody with drive and ambition and competence. And boy, do you have that in spades. I witnessed <laughs> that on our nine-day trip. So we have got to get back to Cuba. How is it that a young girl in Poland fought, winds up falling in love with Cuba? Mm, so I actually, at the beginning, back in Poland, I didn't actually like Cuba. <laughs> So although I was raised between Cubans because we had some Cubans in Poland because we were on the same system. So Cuba was socialist in Poland at the time when I was growing up was socialist. And Cuban students uh, often come to Poland and often stay and married with Polish people. So I knew some of Cubans. My dance teacher was Cuban, for example, and my mom's friend. Uh, but uh, yes, at first, uh, when Poland overthrew socialism, suddenly the sentiment towards Cuba changed by 180 degrees and everything with, associated with Cuba was negative. So I always thought that Fidel, Fidel is, for example, some brutal dictator that eats kids for breakfast. And uh, when I first went to Cuba with a group in UMass, with UMass Boston, I really didn't want to take this trip on. And one of the professors, Felicia Wilczynski, convinced me that it's a it's a great country to explore. And I I went to Cuba and absolutely fell in love. I discovered all the misconception that is presented in Poland or United States about Cuba uh, and discovered my own truth, you know, and my point of view changed. All right. Well, that's certainly an opening for a follow-up question. What were the misconceptions <laughs> about Cuba in Poland and in the United States? So first, it's some sort of thing that Cuba is a very oppressive country, that Cubans, that it's sad, communist country. And that's no longer true. You know, so since 1980s, uh, Fidel allowed private enterprise, Cuba has private restaurants, uh, right now, Cubans own their houses, farmers own their land. 
Uh, it's a country in transition, but definitely no longer communist country. And I was impressed by Cuban natural um, tendency to start businesses, just like myself. They are natural entrepreneurs, I would say. Almost all casas that we stayed in, I mean, all casas that we stayed in on this trip with Emory are privately owned. These are private businesses. Cuba recently passed a constitution that allows private business. And in the US, it's painted as some sort of oppressive country that you cannot speak against the, the government, which is also not true. Cubans don't lower their voice when they speak against the government. Actually, they're very vocal in expressing their discontent with current shortages. And I learned also the very painful truth that lots of the Cuban suffering is to this due to the very unjust embargo from the United States. Well, we have to follow up on that because the narrative here, I know that you see this and that it pains you, and I can certainly see what you're talking about, that the narrative here is that Cuba is a communist country. It was faithful to Russia, the Cuban Missile Crisis, that they have an oppressive regime, that they don't have freedom. And there is some evidence of that, like crackdowns on dissidents and mass arrests. So it's it's not black and white. It's never mm-hmm. black and white. Exactly. It's not that Cuba is a perfect country and it's all the United States' fault. But how is it that you and Cubans see the embargo as being the source of so many problems? Because embargo behind embargo, it's really a political interest of Cuban um, immigrants from from Miami. It is against against Cuban people, for sure. Um, So I wanted to stress out that embargo means that Cuban kids in hospitals don't have medicine. And for 60 years, the embargo only, um, in reality, looks like uh, Cubans don't have access to many things, right? Because they cannot import or export or earn money. Uh, it, It affects Cubans, everyday Cubans. It did not, for 60 years, change the regime. So it failed what was sort of aimed for. And for United States, for I think it's against national interest of the United States because we want Cuba to be pro-America, right? We want, it's only 90 miles from our borders. We don't want Russia there. We don't want certainly China there. And I think opening and establishing relationships with Cuba uh, also allows our companies for business in, to open business in Cuba. For example, our biotech, because Cuba has very strong biotech research, can profit from that. And I think for United States, it's a natural market. Cubans are very much like Americans in terms of uh, personality or preferences or what they like, what they dislike far more than they are like Russians. I think right now just embargo represents a very a narrow group of a lobbyist from Miami. It doesn't represent you, your or mine or average American point of view. No one really understands why embargo is in place in the United States. And it definitely doesn't harm the Cuban government. It definitely harms Cubans, Cuban every 
everyday person. That's a very interesting point you said about all of our efforts to crush Cuba, to to see Cuba as a as a bad country, and we want to mm-hmm. pressure them so that it'll over they'll overthrow the government and get Castro out, get communism out. None of that has worked. You need to explain to us a little bit more. Uh, these Cubans in Miami are the people who were wealthy and mm-hmm. fled to the United States. Tell us a little bit about that history and why they have such such power in U.S. politics. Mm-hmm. Because so the, the first Cubans, of course, of course, not everyone. There are some Cubans that definitely lost their properties due to socialist system. And I'm very much against that. So as a natural entrepreneur and a business owner, I do not think that socialist systems, when government controls, for example, hotels or restaurants, will ever work. Socialist system is not the optimal system for for our nature, right? Because we first want to take care of our business, not some sort of big ideas. But before Fidel Castro, there was another dictator, Batista, and many of the Cubans that left initially Cuba right after the revolution in the 60s were somehow connected to that power, so to another dictator. Then they started to, they were professional politicians, so they built a very powerful lobby. And because Florida for longest time was a swing state, they used this voting power and control over Florida to impose their preferences on U.S. presidents. They wanted the embargo because they want to get back in power. So it was a power struggle at the beginning. So do you think that these people who fled Cuba after Batista, they were loyal mm-hmm. to Batista, they wanted to get rid of Castro and they were the wealthy people and they came here and they developed that much political power that they influenced the state politics yes. and U.S. Yes. politics? Yes, I think it's the second strongest lobby in the United States after Israel lobby. Uh, there is a great book on it, Cuba Confidential, and it's the title where the journalist Anne Bardach explains that those nuances. But I think that that yes, not everybody who left Cuba. So so this is very hard to explain the situation because if I was there at that time when Castro took over power, if I personally was in Cuba, I would leave because I'm very much raw private enterprise. Many of the people who left were, uh, for example, pharmacists who own their own pharmacy. Actually, funny thing is that Fidel's own sister left Cuba and she started a pharmacy in Miami, right? Because she, she wanted to have a private business. And not all the people who left Cuba were directly linked to Batista, but many of them were. So many of the powerful politicians from Batista government left to Miami. And I think they were behind creating this very powerful lobby because they understood how politics work. And they were definitely at the beginning in in 60s and 70s set on a mission to take power back in Cuba. So it's sort of a power struggle between uh, the former powerful people, powerful politicians and the regime of Fidel Castro. Uh, The price for this struggle was paid by by two sides, by Americans who were unable to travel to Cuba for a long time, and by Cubans who, who were victims of this terrible embargo. 60 years later, nothing changed, right? Fidel died by natural death. And that, that's actually another funny thing that many Americans that I meet here still believe that Cuba is run by Castro brothers. 
because Raul was in power until recently, Castro's yes, brother. Yes, until recently, right. But, you know, they, they often people think that they can still go to Cuba and meet Fidel, who's was that for yeah. us? Yes. Well, we're not real good at keeping up with international <laughs> governments, I'm afraid, in this country. We seem t- tend to be a little self-centered. But the couple of things here, these people who are in Cuba, who developed the powerful lobby, who are still there, who are who still believe we need to keep a heavy hand on Cuba, the prize for them is that they think they can get power back and go back and reclaim their private property that they had from I 60 think, years ago. I think that's one of the reasons, definitely. And that they can, yes, the many properties that they lost because they left Cuba, definitely a power. You know, Cuba has a lot to offer. It has beautiful coastlines, um, endless opportunity for development. And whoever takes over power in Cuba will be able to, you know, open Cuba for investment, for example, which means enter contracts with American or other companies. It's just uh, when we don't know why the embargo is in place, which really doesn't make any sense, it's usually power behind it and money and gains to be made. Uh, It's definitely not to protect Cuban people. Cuban people, if you ask anybody on the streets of Cuba, everybody hates embargo. And during when President Obama partially lifted the embargo, I immediately observed a huge, huge increase in privately owned businesses. Private restaurants started to pop up. So the biggest problem with this narrative pro-embargo is that it, it will take off Cuban government, but it doesn't. What really, if you if you want to change the system of this country, Leave the embargo and allow private enterprise. Private enterprise and private businesses are the strongest um, sort of signs of a change, right? And the strongest push for the change of the system. I need to interrupt you and remind people Mm -hmm. because I got so interested in what you were saying. I forgot to do this, but my guest today is Sylvia Rozvodowska owner of Colibri Travel and Tours, who's been in 50 countries and organizes wonderful trips for groups but her love is Cuba and to understand Cuba. And we've got to get to the people of Cuba, but to talk about the U.S. embargo, how the Cuban people are suffering as a result of the U.S. embargo and the political lobby of Cubans who had moved to Miami after the fall of Batista when Castro came into power. My question is, Sylvia, you've you've said several times how much you believe in private enterprise. You would think that the money lobby in the United States would overpower the Cuban lobby because 90 miles from our coast, there is a country that could be developed, that could be a source of income for American businesses if they could get in there. Mm, Exactly. It's just that Cuban government also um, is very careful how they enter the deals with private enterprise. And here I disagree with Cuban government. For example, um, when they allow investment in hotel, they keep 51% of ownership of this hotel and allow private investors to enter only 49%. And this is a raw deal because then they control the service of, in a hotel, they pay the employees, the service is bad. So it's it's not that Cuban, that I am, a, I would say Cuban government needs to be way more open for foreign investment to create the opportunity for American big business 
or small businesses also to invest in Cuba to see this chance of investment. Because right now, I think our companies don't see Cuba as fully open for business. Yeah. As you mentioned, when Obama was president, he let travel, he let cruise ships, he allowed some travel. And our convertible car driver told me, he said, when those in those years, they had business all day, people coming off the ships, renting their cars mm-hmm. and just busy all the time making money. Now we have reinstated the, the a stricter embargo and, and uh, reduced those opportunities. So let's move on to the people. Oh, my gosh. We on this trip, the students, the adults who were lucky enough to be there, we got the lesson about, oh, the beautiful, beautiful Cuban people. Mm-hmm. And as you said, they're suffering. We saw gas shortages. They can't get soap. Mm-hmm. They can't get chocolate. So they are suffering. Tell us about the beauty of the Cuban people through your eyes. Mm-hmm. So I, when I say I fell in love in Cuba, I really fell in love in Cubans. They graciousness, they in such a difficult circumstances, um, they always watch out for me and they watch out for each other. So the examples are Cuba is, for example, extremely safe. And often my travelers will, by getting off the taxi, for example, a couple of my travelers, the, they left the phone in a taxi. And you'll see the driver chasing the, the yelling, hombre, you forgot your phone, you know, yeah. here's your phone. I myself are um, traveling with the groups with lots of cash because it's very much a cash economy. For 20 people, I once left a, a laptop bag with $4,000 on a parking lot. And one hour later, we called the parking lot. And they said, yes, we have all your cash for you and your laptop and your laptop bag. So so they are extremely honest, extremely gracious. They never blame Americans. They sort of understand that it's politics. Um, they are very open. You know, I call Havana a city of thousand hugs because before you pass Havana, you're being hugged and kissed and, and welcome as a family that never in any of the countries I travel to, that never happened that within a few days, um, you're being a a friend, not a tourist. Their homes are open, whatever they have, they share with you. However they can, they they help you. You, I'm not sure if you observed that, but it's so easy to bond with Cuban people. Oh, do you think I observed that? Do you remember Ronnie, <laughs> the the band member? I fell in love with that young man and we're still in communication and he wants so much to learn English. He was so sweet. Yes. Yeah. But, but uh, yes, they were all wonderful from every person who helped in the casas and fed us and all that kind of stuff. Everybody was wonderful, but not anybody can just jump on a plane and go to Cuba, right? Uh, actually, anybody, yes. Anybody can. It takes a little bit of an effort because you need to select the category, but you sort of select it only when you buy in a plane. So support for the Cuban people. All you can't my, say I'm going as a tourist. So you cannot go as a tourist. You need to have a fully planned itinerary under the category of support for the Cuban people. So you're going to eat, you're going to support private business, basically. So stay in privately owned houses, eat in private restaurants and have an itinerary that it's fully uh, 
designed to with cultural and educational activities. So we cannot just, go, for example, go and sit in a bars and sit on a beach. Or, this you cannot do. You cannot be just tourist. Uh, but if you support private business and you select support for the Cuban people category, yes, everybody can go. They can order visa from travel companies like us or purchase from the airline at the gate because every airline that travels to Cuba sells Cuban visas. Well, and I'm sure that you wouldn't mind if anybody wanted to contact Calibri Travel and Tours to find out information or to plan highly scheduled, beautiful, fabulous trips. And gosh, and we, we lived large with your travel company and the arrangements you had made. And it was hard to know that we were eating well and sleeping in air conditioned rooms and that's not what the Cuban people can do. Mm, not majority of Cuban people, yes. But there is a good, right now, you know, after Obama, um, there is a good amount of Cuban people that do have air condition or, you know, the, the access to food. Yes, they cannot eat as, as we did in restaurant and so on. But generally, there is, I've never seen hunger in Cuba. Although you must remember that tourists in general, in general has a negative uh, influence on the planet. So you can offset it by choosing the countries when your impact as a traveler is greater than the negative impact as a CO emission. And Cuba is one of these countries. Cuba doesn't cannot export things, does not produce many things. Their income is 90% of their the income is from tourism. So by you being there, um, you know, probably the driver that we were using that night put a better food on the table. Yeah. The the guide was able to purchase a, a data plan to have access to the internet and so on. So the very positive aspect of travel to Cuba offsets those things that maybe I eat better than Cubans. Maybe I slept in a better casas. Of course, for sure that's true. But but you also had incredible positive impact. We are so out of time so quickly. <laughs> Give us just some quick advice on books to read, movies to watch for people who might be interested in learning more. Uh, I think Cuba Libre is a series uh, of, I think, eight documentaries uh, called Cuba Libre about history of Cuba. Uh, another great one is Yuli about most famous ballet dancers. Black oh, say that again. I watched that. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. Yuli, yes, beautiful. Y-U-L-I? Uh, Y-U-L-I, exactly. Yuli, the movie, watch mm-hmm. it, the documentary. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. And of course, Cuba and the Cameraman. Cuba and the Cameraman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Fantastic documentary on Cuba. We are flat out of time. Sylvia Rosvadowska of Colibri Travel and Tours. I hope people who want to travel the world will find you. You are a force of nature. Any 10-second closing you'd like to say? I would like to invite everybody to... Just don't believe politicians or whatever you hear here in the U.S. Just go and see Cuba with your own eyes and make your own judgment. I second that emotion, Sylvia Rosvadowska, Calibri Travel and Tours. You're listening to this conversation on WEHC and WISE. This program airs Sunday at 2, Wednesday at 6, and you can find our podcast by going to wehcfm.com. Click on the podcast site, click on this conversation. You can hear this again or find, oh, I'd say a hundred other episodes you can listen to. 
Thanks again to the listeners. Thanks again to Sylvia. And please stay tuned to this station.